You're listening to Star Trek, the Undiscovered Podcast. to escort you to your meeting on Earth. Guess who's coming to dinner? I have so wanted to meet you, Captain. One warrior to another. Right. On the verge of peace. The undiscovered country. On the brink of war. We come in peace, and you blatantly defile that we haven't fired. According to our databanks, we have. I shall blow you out of the stars. Now. The crew of the Starship Enterprise will not be the instigators of full-scale war on the eve of universal peace. They're coming about. Battle stations. Fights not to win battles. Incoming. Signal our surrender. Captain? We surrender. But to end them forever. An attempt to rescue them, an act of war. There will never be a better time. This is Captain Sulu, USS Excelsior. We stand ready to assist you. This is fun. You do prefer it this way, as it was meant to be. Warrior to warrior. She cannot take much more of this. Cry havoc! Kill! And let's slip the dogs of war! Fire! Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us once again. Now, I definitely cannot forget to introduce myself. I am Greg. I have been forgetting to introduce myself like every episode, so I am Greg. So you might be thinking, Greg, why are you speaking right now when you said someone else is moderating this week? Hang on, getting to that because we have a special announcement to make. This is an exciting show because it is the third in our series of a non-Trek fan watches Star Trek. Now, I thought about it, and I really should call it a non-Trek watcher watches Star Trek because a non-Trek fan makes it sound like these people don't like Star Trek, but that's not really what it is. It's a non-Trek watcher watching Star Trek, but for all intents and purposes, I think you know what we're talking about. Okay. So you're going to meet the man of the hour in just a second, who is our non-Trek watcher. But first, let me introduce our regular panelist who's on the panel today, Mr. Dan Martin. What's up, Dan? How are you tonight? Oh, man, I am doing splendidly today. I had a surprisingly excellent Monday, and Mondays are usually just dreadful. But today was excellent. I got to the grocery store. I got some yummy stuff to eat. And I had plenty of coffee, plenty of water. So I am feeling like it's a Wednesday or something. Let me ask you, did you get some gawk? Due to no, the no gawk. The no, but I okay. did get some Flomeek soup. Oh, excellent. Yeah, due to the film 
of what we're reviewing today. So this is, of course, a non-Trek watcher watches Star Trek, but we are doing a full movie review today of 1991 Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country, which, hey, spoiler alert, that is the namesake of our very podcast named by you, Mr. Dan Martin. <laughs> I forgot about that. I forgot I came up with the name. That is correct. Okay. So regular panelist Daniel Hully couldn't be with us tonight. So let's meet the non-Trek fan slash watcher who is joining us for the review this evening, Mr. Kyle Bain. What's up, Kyle? Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Man, I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this for like a week and a half now since I watched the movie, and I'm very excited to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me oh, on. Oh, me too. I, I hope that's great news for everybody listening. Okay, <laughs> folks. So let me let's talk about why it took time and why we are introducing our moderator tonight, why it took our dear sweet time. And for this announcement, we want to bring in as a surprise guest, the man behind our comm system, every show, DJ Nick. Come on in, DJ Nick. Come hey, on in. Everybody. <laughs> hey, DJ Nick. So as DJ Nick is here um, to introduce our moderator tonight, it is a congratulatory introduction. Moderating tonight, the man who will be taking over as of season four as host of his, it, for all intents and purposes, it's his very own podcast, MSV podcast, now owned by our moderator tonight, my friend, and I, I can't imagine anybody else who John and I are so happy about handing the keys over, Mr. Ken Radner. What's up, Ken? Hey, Ken, congrats. Hey, all right. Thanks so much, guys. I mean, just the idea that you would give me the honor of, you know, taking taking the helm, I guess, as it were, of that podcast and uh, giving me the ability to steer it in my own way. I hope I do you proud. I got a lot of interesting ideas, and I think I think you guys are going to enjoy it. I think I'm actually going to, just as with this podcast, we seem to kind of convert people over to being interested in Trek. In my podcast, I am going to attempt to bring people over to a couple of other genres that are quite interesting. So I, I hope it's going to be an uh, interesting journey for all of us. I can't wait. And hey, uh, any idea when you'll be starting uh, MSV? It's, it's not as of yet, simply because the first project that I want to do is basically an entire series of like 20 something episodes so it's going to take like a little while to watch them but i'm hoping hey. we'll be up within the next couple of weeks excellent ken well as to not disappoint our fans but know that you'll be heard you know we are taking a little break after tonight's episode on star trek the Discover podcast so hey you'll have time to plan that all uh all right ken engage so um, tonight, we're basically going to do a review of the Star Trek movie, Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country. So it was done in 1991, and it has, it's basically the classical cast going on one of their final adventures, and it's, uh, it's a very interesting movie in the sense of, as the time it was going on, this was around the time when the actual Cold War between the U.S. and 
Russia or Soviet Union at that time was kind of ending, the, the Berlin Wall was falling, and they definitely put a lot of those parallels in the movie um, to the, I guess, detriment of those people who like to claim that Star Trek is not a political commentary. It very much is, and it always has been from the beginning to the end. It always has been. So the movie opens up actually with a tribute to Gene Roddenberry, who died that very year that the movie came out. We then move on to our credits, and we see that Leonard Nimoy was the executive producer as well as the writer. Then we move on to the beginning of the movie, where we see a incredible explosion that is actually found out later to be the destruction of the Klingon moon Praxis, which provides the major amount of energy to the Klingon homeworld. We find the USS Excelsior, led by Captain Hikaru Sulu, uh, drinking yes. his tea. Earl Grey? Hot? Perhaps? They are engaged in a large energy wave that is coming out of Praxis to the uh, explosion. By the way, they're wearing um, <laughs> they're wearing Wrath of Khan era uniforms. And then they, you know, they see the explosion. We see a couple of interesting cameos. We see uh, Grace Lee Whitney, who's Yeoman Rand, still in Starfleet. We also she's see she's not a yeoman anymore our, at this point, though, is she? She's yeah, she's probably not. Yeah, it looks like she she might have been. Was she a communications officer? Or was she like science? Yeah, ops? I think so. Yep, communications. So we get to see. Uh, many of us, our Facebook friend, Jeremy Roberts, who is Dimitri Valtain, who is in this movie and also on Voyager season three flashback. The Excelsior is engulfed. They uh, message to provide help. Praxis replies in terror with the immediate person on Praxis dying in a wall of flame. And then the Klingons reply back from their homeworld saying, we don't need your help. We're good. There's nothing wrong. So guys, I want the, the initial impressions of your opening of the opening scene of this movie. So let's, uh, let's start, let's start with Kyle. Cause I know, you know, we, we always do your movie reviews. what do you think about the beginning of it? So going back to the, uh, the tribute to Gene Roddenberry, I, I imagine that that makes the, the film, uh, that much more important in the grand scheme of Star Trek. Again, I know nothing about Star Trek. I, I even write because I did a review of this while I while I watched, and I, I said that my only knowledge of Star Trek comes from the Big Bang Theory, um, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, but that's the case nonetheless. Um, so I, I feel like this this team probably was tasked with something far greater than just creating a film, but now uh, continuing the legacy of the man that created it all. So I, I was I was interested in that. that. That kind of piqued my interest from the very beginning because I'm thinking now, I mean, again, I don't know what the previous films entailed, but I'm now looking at this going, this needs to be damn near perfect for them to be able to live up to what I'm assuming his expectations would have been, which would have been very high. Um, 
but so I know who George Takei is. Um, I'm familiar with the face and, and I, I know a little bit that he was in Star Trek, obviously from the big bang theory. Um, and seeing that familiar face, n- not being a- as Greg said, a watcher of Star Trek, it was a nice way because he's such a familiar face to bridge the gap between the things that are going on on screen and someone who has no idea what's happening. So I like that they introduce you to someone right off the bat. That's very familiar to people, even that aren't familiar with the, with the Star Trek lure. So I really enjoyed that. And I was, so one of my issues with the overall film was that maybe there was a lack of a threat to some of those main characters, but in initially you feel that threat and you feel like you're not really sure what's going to happen next. And I was very intrigued by that in the first few minutes. At the time, Takei didn't have any of that social media presence that he does now. So this was Mm -hmm. a big breakthrough for him coming from having sat at the helm so long at the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. Him becoming captain was really important to George Takei. Okay. Yeah, they definitely they definitely needed to do a lot of the things they did. I, I you notice in this film that many of the characters did receive their you know their promotions. I mean, almost everybody was a captain at this point, um, except for you know, well, well, definitely Kirk, but he got busted down to captain after being an admiral, which becomes an issue later on in the movie. So what I'd like to do is I, I want to move it over to Dan. What was your impression of just that opening procedure of the movie? Well, I remember years ago when I first went to see it, I was so happy that Sulu had become a captain because I had been following Star Trek since I was three, you know, and I just always knew that he deserved it, that he had the potential as a character to be a captain. Afterwards, though, I was disappointed that they didn't make a whole TV show of him and the Excelsior and all that stuff. The ship was sweet looking. The bridge was sweet looking. Everything about that intro. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is cool. And I love that Rand was there and um, just a great way to start a film with Praxis blowing up. You're like, oh, my gosh, the stakes are high. What's going on? And then as the other characters start showing up, you know, of the big original series characters and how they're involved. It's like, yeah, we're getting into the thick of things. And it gets into things rather quickly. The initial incident hits, boom, you're off on an adventure. So I really enjoyed that. Excellent. I want to move it over to Greg. Greg, what do you think about the opening act of the movie? Well, uh, I want to preface that for this uh, critical rewatch, I actually watched the film twice. And that was to catch a little bit of a plot hole that maybe you guys could clear up for me. There's a part of the movie that I don't understand, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to the end and, you know, um, and, and we'll get there. Um, but that being said, it's still one of my favorite uh, films, let alone a Star Trek film. I saw this movie in 1991, probably opening uh, weekend. And uh, I was floored by it. For me, it was nice to see George Takei, as you know, cause he's a quote personal friend of mine. Cause in 1989, of course, I met him at the uh, at a Star Trek convention and I hung out with him all day and it was amazing. Um, it, it actually was foreshadowed in, I believe, The Voyage Home that Sulu was going to get Excelsior. Uh, that was planned um, because he said, I'm hoping for Excelsior when they get the ship at the 
in the uh, climax yeah. of that movie when they were waiting for which ship they were going to be assigned. Sulu said he was hoping for Excelsior. So I believe George Takei also wouldn't have done the film this time around if he didn't get something to do. But what I love about it, and maybe I'm skipping ahead, is that everybody was giving something important to do because it was the final film. Uh, to add to what Kyle said, there were a lot of stakes with this film because it was the final adventure of the TOS crew. The other thing that they made sure to do, and Nimoy was brilliant in this, was they thought of how it was going to connect to TN TNG, which was the big TV show at that time. It was, um, it was in like its third or fourth season at that time. Third, I think. And how did we make peace with the Klingons? How did the peace start with the Klingons? We learned that in this. And of course, we know who they threw in, an actor that they threw in to play an ancestor of a character in Next Gen. <laughs> um, I feel like the film, as a film, if I'm, I'm just talking about it uh, for the filmmaking um, skills that Nicholas Meyer had, and of course, who better than the director of Wrath of Khan to direct a movie like Kyle said, he was spot on. There was a lot of stakes here. This was the final adventure, you know? And I think they did the TOS crew right with this. Um, so I think the film ropes you in right away with those opening moments. It's excellent to see Sulu as captain. And um, it's very fascinating to see the Klingons being vulnerable at that point. And you are kind of thinking to yourself, it, it, it ropes you in right away because you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is, this is quite the kerfuffle, you know? And so many things are ex at stake with uh, Kronos, or the, the moon of Praxis um, exploding and the Klingons being vulnerable what does this mean for the Federation? What does this mean for the Klingons? Because the Federation, despite the Klingons being at that time the greatest threat, what does this mean for the Federation? They're in a rock and a hard place now. And which is, of course, that's going to move on to the next scene. But to finish up what's going on is it is the Federation. And you see that Sulu, Captain Sulu is, is, do you need assistance? But that's also a great way to start with we we, because we are the Federation, it's an enemy, but this is something, a, catastro a catastrophe just happened. People are suffering. The Federation, despite who they are, is willing to help them. So already it's off to a very fast, and I don't think you have to be a Trek watcher to figure that out, you know, to know, you, everybody knows who the Klingons are, but, you know, despite that, they could see, uh, and the Klingon, there's such a hatred between the Klingon and, and Starfleet Federation. The Klingon is saying, don't even help us. That's fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating. So it ropes you in right away. That is absolutely true. I think that just the dynamic, as you said, Greg, about them, you know, the, the Excelsior being available and their enemies for, you know, how long? A hundred like almost a hundred years, like, yeah, like was, 50 yeah. to 80 years that they automatically see that there's an issue. And right away, we're going to help because we're the Federation. We don't care who you are. We help out. And just like you say, and the Klingons have pride to a fault. So they would, as we will find out in the next uh, act of this, 
that the Klingons, some of them would rather die fighting than try and survive. So we move on to a couple of months later, and there is a, you know, super secret meeting in Starfleet where they explain that that explosion of Praxis has affected the atmosphere of Kronos, and now they have only about 50 years worth of oxygen left on the planet because it's affected, obviously affected their atmosphere. And Spock is now who no one knew where he, wa- where he was. Apparently, Spock has been negotiating with the Klingons at the behest of his father, Sarek. He chooses, he asks to have the neutral zone between the Klingons and the Federation abolished and asks for the Klingons to be assisted by the Federation. Everyone in the command staff has a negative response. It's, it's, again, very, very analogous to what was happening around that time when the Berlin Wall fell and we were, and, you know, Soviet Union was kind of dissolving a bit and everyone was trying to bring things into a, a general relationship. And some of the language used in that scene was very, very strong. By today's standards, you watch some of that stuff, it's disturbing. I mean, calling the Klingons like horrible animals and, you know, things like that. It, it's just, it, it was, it's really watching it on my, I don't know, 15th, 16th time. I didn't think about it back then. And then I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, oh my God, they were really like harsh. So that was pretty rough. Uh, uh, Kirk was chosen chosen by Spock to lead a diplomatic response without Kirk's approval. He did it behind his back. And Kirk was very, very upset about it. But as the old, the old Klingon proverb goes, excuse me, the old Vulcan proverb goes, only Nixon can go to China. So they that chose Klingon, Kirk. no? I thought that was a Klingon. Was it Klingon? Okay, yeah, okay. Klingon yeah, proverb. I, yeah, I, I, I don't remember how Spock earlier. presented I it. I thought because Spock was. <laughs> I thought that that was, was. I thought that was Chang's line, actually. No, 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 no. that or, was Spock saying it at the. At, no, no, no. That was that was Spock saying it at the meeting. Yeah, after most okay. said it at the, meeting. the meeting have dissipated. And, 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 oh yes, and I think so. I th- yeah, yes. yeah. Okay, okay. And you can see it's it's palpable in that meeting. The beginning of. Well, the existing and persisting hatred that Kirk has. Because Spock is basically saying, as any Starfleet officer would say, you know, they're dying. You know, in, in a sense, you know, we, we have to help take care of them. They're dying. And the line, Kirk, let them die. So just an, an, an extremely powerful scene. What do you guys think of the court scene? Greg. Oh, um, you know, in this rewatch, you know, I I don't remember, you know, I was a very young kid when I first saw it, but in these two rewatches, I thought it was amazing. You know, everybody, you're not the only person who's compared this film with the, you know, the Soviet Union and was going on at that time. I feel like this film is a parable for racism 
And here you have very admirable pop culture characters. They had, excuse me, folks, they had balls to do that. And as we all know, um, and I'm sure it you know, became obvious to Kyle, uh, the Klingons killed Kirk's son in cold blood in Star Trek Three, And uh, so he has a personal vendetta. And every single one of them, uh, except for Spock, is because this is a dire situation. These people are going to die. You know, the, the Klingons, they're going to die. What's happening is a catastrophe. To hear Kirk, Captain James Tiberius Kirk, who at that point we've been seeing, uh, what, 30, 40 years and what Starfleet is all about. But all of them, Brock Peters' character, who was had very little screen time, but a very, very significant part. Yeah, Admiral Cartwright, yeah. The, yes, the fact that they were talking like this was a parable for the racism. And, you know, we're going to get to the dinner, you know, very shortly. But it was powerful stuff uh, for me, more so even these times, to really talk about, you know, to really think about, and of course, later in the film, it was realized, all of them from, you know, Scotty to Chekhov to Uhura and then Kirk, especially their animals, let them die, you know, Cartwright, every one of their words. But Spock sees the opportunity for peace here because some of them are saying it'll bring the Klingons to their knees. And it's like they'll they'll be indebted to us and they can't, you know, hurt us. But it was almost as if they were saying, like, let them be let them be. Uh, 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 you know, like subservient to us, like, like rid rid ridiculous stuff. And this was Starfleet. This was the United Federation of Planets, which they made sure to say, and they made sure to have the flag there of the United Federation of Planets. This was ridiculously powerful uh, stuff here, especially Captain Kurt and all of them with their, the, 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 the Klingons make them sick and animals and stuff, you know, back from then when racism wasn't so even as uh, out in the open as it is today, but it was there. All those words were used for all different kinds of races, uh, you know, black, Jew, uh, Muslim, all these races uh, that they, they were referred to that way by the racist. And this was we were hearing people that we really admired say these words. And what's but, interesting is you yeah. remember Kirk in the original series. Uh, telling one of the navigators, you know, leave your racism off the bridge. Yeah, I'm not going to have yeah. that. And so seeing Kirk experiencing it or, or exhibiting it is like, right. whoa, he, here's the guy who was reprimanding somebody else about, you know. Well, they didn't they didn't kill his son at that point, though. He had he had yeah, a personal. Yeah. yeah you know. And of course, yeah, that was definitely a great that, that was definitely point. a great line. Keep your bigotry in your bunk, mister. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So, you know what? I Let's uh, move it over to Dan. What did you think of the uh, Starfleet meeting scene? I was really blown away when you see Spock choosing Jim without Jim's knowledge. And it's like, oh, my gosh. What kind of best friend puts his friend in a position like that? he had to have a lot of confidence in their relationship to be able to do that to Jim and spring it on him in front of all of those people. It's like, okay, here's what you've got to do. If a friend did that to me in a meeting like that, I would probably really freak out. 
But Jim, he holds it together. He talks to Spock afterwards. Spock uses his logic to explain to him, you know, this is what you've got to do. This is what needs to be done for the good of the many. I mean, he doesn't say for the good of the many like he always has. But that's what it comes down to. You know, the good of the many outweighs Jim's opinion. And uh, as the film goes on, there are situations that they get into where Jim is still wrestling with all of the emotions that he has inside. And it remains really good acting from Bill Shatner, really solid acting from Nimoy, great writing. And the cinematography, you look at how they're shot. You look at the angles at which they're shot when, when Spock and Jim are talking about stuff. And it's like, wow, this is, it's really good. And especially after coming off of five, you know, because the fifth movie, it didn't do a whole lot for me. <laughs> All right. I would like to move it over to Kyle and ask, what were your impressions of this scene? So, uh, again, being the guy here that has never seen anything Star Trek related, I had to look at this movie and constantly ask, how are they appealing to me? How are they appealing to viewers like me? It would be really silly for a lot of people to jump in at number six. But looking at it as a singular entity and rather rather than as a part of, of a whole, I, I kept asking myself, what is this movie doing to bridge the gap between what I don't know and what's happening in the film? And I think the set alone does a great job there. It's it's very familiar. I mean, most of the film is otherworldly. You're you're on you're on the Enterprise and you're all over the place and you're in outer space. And it's hard to if you're not familiar with these kinds of things um, access that. So I think that placing it in a very familiar boardroom in a very familiar setting allows people like me to appreciate it and to. And then just the, the dialogue is put together so well that it allows me to understand the relationship between Kirk and Spock and understand the relationship between Kirk and the Klingons. And it only takes place over the course of a few minutes. And to be able to do that so quickly um, is incredible. I referred to the dialogue as being very Shakespearean and they obviously reference Shakespeare. So I think they're very, they're very aware that they, they are that. Yes. Um, so I, I it, just the dialogue was it, it was it just floored me the way that they were able to using words rather than action, be able to appeal to someone who has never seen anything and honestly went into this thinking I'm probably not going to like it and just changing my mind very quickly. Well, it seems to me that th there are some Star Trek movies out of all 13 of them. I shouldn't count the J.J. ones because they were made for a new viewer. But um, it seems that each movie um, has something in it that could make it stand alone. A lot of as we talked when we talked about First Contact uh, with DJ Nick, that yes, you kind of have to know stuff. But the Star Trek movies, I think, do a very good job. Uh, listen, they've converted a lot of non-Trek watchers into Trek fans, the movies alone. But I think all of them have an aspect in it to go, even if you don't, especially Star Trek three, that, I mean, that's the real middle of a, you know, uh, that's, that's the one that doesn't quite stand alone, but I think all of them are watchable for the non-initiated. Now, my question to Kyle is how did you go this far without falling into Trek? Uh, 
before, I mean, you've for folks who are listening, this man has the most impressive wall of DVDs <laughs> behind him that I've seen in years. How did you not get into Trek earlier? As I've told Ken many times, I'm incredibly stubborn and I avoid movies because of, uh, I don't know, because of their place in popular culture. But I've also been a Star Wars fan my whole life. Oh, so you're um, like the and, kind of guy who says, oh, the Beatles suck. Just because everybody believe, it not, likes I, believe it or not, I hate the Beatles. You nailed it. <laughs> but um, so I, I always was under the impression that I could either like Star Wars or Star Trek, that they could not coexist. So I, it's a really lousy way to look at it, but that's the way I looked at it. And I avoided Star Trek my entire life. And I actually did reach out to Greg a few months ago and I asked him, in what order should I watch these? And I, I was getting more and more interested in the idea of watching them. And this sort of forced me to sit down and do it quicker than I anticipated, which I'm really glad that I did because now I know that I was, you know, an idiot for years. What are your thoughts on Doctor Who and Stargate though? I have not seen either one. Oh my God. Oh God. You're killing me, man. Kyle. Um, did I hear you correctly that you reviewed the undiscovered country for your uh, website as well? I just edited today, so it will go up very shortly. I wanted to wait because I didn't want you guys to know what I thought before we, we hopped on here. Now, what are your all-time favorite films, though, Kyle, real quick? So my all-time favorite film is Empire Strikes Back. Um, for okay, well, a multitude good. of reasons, it's a fantastic film. Uh, Ken and I talked about this for a, for a long, long time. Um, but there, it has a, has a very, it's very near and dear to my heart as well for, for a number of reasons. But I like, you know, I like dramas and I like I'm into the Marvel movies now. And there's this fantastic uh, indie film that I really love called One of the Good Ones about, you know, just the idea of figuring out whether or not you're a good person. And I like all different kinds of things. But Empire Strikes Back has always ended up being number one. May I say, that's a a solid choice. Yeah. And I chose the undiscovered country, just like there was a method to my madness of, of choosing first contact for DJ Nick's. Uh, Star Trek adventure. I chose this one for you for those for reasons as well. Well, kudos well, to you because it was a fantastic choice. Oh, uh, well, thank you. Okay, Ken, sorry about that. Take it okay, awesome, awesome. So basically, we pick up after that where Kirk is then ferried over to the NCC 1701A, the refit and new enterprise. And we get to meet Valeris, by, played by Kim Cattrall. Interesting character, very pivotal to the episode, uh, excuse me, movie. And actually, you know, acted quite well. I enjoyed how, you know, her tone of voice was correct. She acted everything appropriately. She seemed very much that she understood what she was supposed to be. Uh, Kirk takes the Enterprise out against regulation, as warned by Lieutenant Valeris. And then we see on the Enterprise in Kirk's quarters, he ruminates about his distrust and hatred for Klingons because of the death of his son, David. So, what do you uh, what do you think about just this initial view of of the new enterprise and the introduction of Lieutenant Valeris and Kirk's 
response on his log to his hatred of Klingons. I would like to go with Kyle first. So the introduction of the new Enterprise sadly means nothing to me, having no, no knowledge of what anything looked like before. <laughs> but so uh, Valeris, um, Kim Cattrall is someone that I only knew from Sex and the City, which was not a show that I watched, but it was a show that I was semi-familiar with. And so I kind of just put her in, you know, put her in a corner and that's, that's where she existed in cinema and in, and in Hollywood. So to see her in this role was unique for me, but I thought she was fantastic. I thought she was a unique juxtaposition to the other characters. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed her character, character from the time she was introduced until, until the movie concluded. Okay, that's excellent. I would like to go to Dan with his response to this, getting to see the beauty shot of the Enterprise, <laughs> getting to oh, get yeah. back on there. You know, watch watching them, <laughs> watching them tell them to go out on you know quarter impulse, and Scotty just smiling ear to ear when they go yep, through. It, it, it's it's yeah, it was it was just one of those, you know, the gang's back together doing our thing. Let's let's do it. What did you think about it, Dan? Yeah, it's always great to see a nice cinematic shot of the enterprise up on the big screen where I first saw it when I was like 21 or something like that. And of course, any moment with Scotty and his ship, even though it's not his original constitution class starship, he's in love with the one seven Oh one a at that point, because that's the one he's got. And uh, that's a great moment. There was another Vulcan for me to develop a crush on. And because, uh, again, you know, I'm like 21 when I first see this movie and I had seen Mannequin. So I was already uh, a fan of that particular actress. Yeah. If you haven't seen Mannequin, don't bother. It doesn't hold up, but it was fun in its time. And uh, I really thought that it was great. And I liked the interplay between Valeris and Spock in the first half of the movie. As the film goes on, there's some really crazy, surprising stuff, deep stuff. But uh, that beginning, I'm like, wow. And um, you start reading all of the fan magazines during the era, and you see that there was a potential for that to have been um, uh, Savic, but they changed it. It was not Savic. And it would have been weird had it been Savic because we had so much with her before i'm glad it ended up being a new character because it was a great addition to star trek dan was it originally supposed to be savic in that in that movie oh yeah wow okay let's uh we're gonna yeah, move on great. to greg what did, what did you think about we're bringing back the boys kim cattrall if you're listening i'd love to take you out to a drink for a drink i heard you're single now hey i asked out carol alt i could ask out kim cattrall now here we go so I was looking at it today. There's a thing about that she did. First of all, I knew that even when I first saw the movie, because I'd been watching at that point, Wrath of Khan, since I'm, what, four, um, that she was a Savic-like character, Spock's, you know, protege. Um, seeing the role, not knowing what's going to happen at the end, her performance seemed kind of strange. But because there's this twist at the end, she's effing brilliant. And 
like a really great performance. It's this this ingenue, new, quote, hungry, um, uh, uh, who wants to, or at least she claims, succeed Spock in his role. And Spock, especially what happens later with Spock, I can't wait to talk about that, uh, is it's his last mission. So he thinks at, at this point in the film, he's leaving his position in good hands. He's, he's you know, um, priming her to take, his because she's the second Vulcan in in Starfleet, I believe. Um, at this point, uh, I don't think and the first full one, right? To Paul in the prequels was never uh in Starfleet. Um, well, no, I'm so, talking about Savik was a half Roman, right. and she uh, Valeris is the first full Vulcan, and Spock, of course, half human, right? And so he was so proud and was you could personally vouched for her. This is all important stuff for later. So the introduction of Valaris, you're you're like maybe first if you went in if you if you went in knowing the Savic character, you're like ah she's this movie Savic, she's 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 going to help them solve things. You know you don't really know what's going. Uh, Ken, I think I'm the first one who's then answering the question. This was again with Perk in his quarters, a very and we know what happens with that log later, a very powerful scene because they're showing at that point. I'm not sure how much Star Trek showed that some of these officers that because they're us, we're flawed. We're all imperfect. And that's what makes us perfect. But Starfleet is the best of the best of the best. And at this point you're hearing the space cowboy himself, many people's heroes, the too cool for school, James Tiberius Kirk talking like that as, as much as we understand why he's talking like that. Again, they had even more balls I've never trusted Klingons. I can't forgive them for the death of my boy. This is powerful stuff that, like, you can't believe it's coming out of Kirk's mouth. I think it was amazing. And we know, you know, what happens at the end. But at this point in the movie, Kirk is flawed. Kirk, it's it's the stuff that's coming out of all their mouths. Yeah. Yeah. This indeed, as... To your point, this was a very, very poignant and powerful scene, especially getting to see that now our perfect characters from our beloved series from years and years in the past, that they're just as human as the rest of us. It doesn't matter if they're these incredible genius scientists and, you know, can do like triple backflips and like double leg kicks into a Gorn that they... They can be broken. And at this point, you could see there's Kirk has damage there. And he act think, actively yeah. has. Yeah. Well, well, if I may say, I think this um, movie paved the way for the other imperfect Starfleet characters when we started to see them in, uh, in Next Gen. Uh, uh, I'm not really sure because this movie was made while Next Gen was on. But DS9 um you know and cisco's uh feelings on the borg of course and um uh, enterprise and and all of them to follow hey we just saw in picard captain shaw i really think that this movie paved the way for the quote imperfect starfleet officers just finding out that they're more human whereas the tv series it was you know, we're heroes and we're going to go after the bad guy of the week and then save the world and you know never say anything like this stuff again this for especially in 1991, you know, for the the heroes to speak this way, I think was unheard of for any movie, any franchise. 
especially Star Trek, where, you know, they were such beloved pop culture icons. I definitely think that's such a poignant response. I think your point about Shaw is perfect, that you get to see these people aren't just flawed for, you know, the point of being flawed. They're flawed because something deeply affected them. And you, exactly. you know, where, where people, you can't get beyond that kind of thing. You could try to move beyond it, but at a certain point, it is going to get to you. So, and that was probably one of the first instances in which we saw something like this happen to one of our main characters. So now moving on, after we see this discussion, there is, of course, the Klingon's approach in their battle cruiser. And they, they hail them. There's the discussion with Kirk and Gorkhan, Chancellor Gorkhan, who we see is David Warner. And David Warner, the actor that he is, he's been in many things. As Kyle and I just recently discussed, David Warner was the antagonist in Tron. So it was a great thing to get to see him because you look at him and you say, I know that guy. And they do that a lot in Star Trek movies. They have people come in that you've seen before in many other things and they bring him into something different. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's, you can't stop seeing them as the person in the other thing. He did an excellent performance in this. And you could tell at the very beginning of the discussion on the hailing screen Gorkhan and Kirk are not happy with each other. They, they're, they're not exactly being diplomatic. They're, they're kind of just going through their paces. Kirk invites them all to dinner. They accept. They beam aboard. And then we are introduced to Chang, played by Christopher Plummer. Oh, so yeah. this, is, this is the man that will chew the scenery for the rest of the movie. This guy, his performance is ridiculous. I, right. I don't mean ridiculous in a bad sense. I, I, I mean legendary. In, yeah. You're right. And, and yes. you guys yes. know uh, in, the, in the captain's documentary, William Shatner interviewed him, and William Shatner publicly said that Christopher Plummer should have gotten an Oscar nomination for this role, and he didn't because it was Star Trek. That, that William Shatner yep. quoted to say that, yes. Um, so we, we, <laughs> we get to meet him immediately in imposing presence. They go to have dinner where there is a healthy amount of verbal jousting and a copious amount of Shakespearean quotes that are better understood in the original Klingon. So what I really would like to know is this is probably one of one of the greater scenes in the movie was this, this dinner scene because it had that kind of antagonistic feel, but through a, a just conversational way. Like they were showing their hatred for each other, but they were trying to keep it under control because they knew what they had to do. So I want to start out with Kyle. What did you think? What did you think of that dinner scene? Well, actually, so, the introduction of them beaming up and then the dinner scene. So the beaming was something I was semi-familiar with. So it was cool to actually, you know, see it happen for the first time in a movie. Um, and I thought that it was very cool. And it was, uh, like I said earlier, it was 
I, I was always under the impression that Star Wars and Star Trek could not coexist. And while they are still very similar for obvious reasons, little things like this separate them. And I, I appreciate that about this. And then the dinner scene um, was when I first realized, obviously with the Shakespeare quotes, um, just how important the dialogue is. I mean, it really hit me in, in, in this moment to think, because again, it's not action based, it's dialogue based and, and the tensions rise so quickly at this point. And like Ken said, they all know what's at stake and to, to hear them speak to, to one another the way that they do while remaining mostly composed was incredibly interesting. I enjoyed a, an intergalactic film where it wasn't all about space battles and it wasn't all about who had the bigger gun. It was a very intelligent movie. And I always say that intelligence is very, intelligence is very attractive. It doesn't matter if it's a person or a song or a movie, but that was one of the most attractive qualities of this film is how intelligent it was. And it really shines through in that dinner scene. All right. So Greg, what do you think about the beaming up and dinner scene, which was obviously very much the Cold War. Yeah, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you that Gorkon and Kirk didn't like each other. Gorkon was the one Klingon. He's the one that opened dialogue with Spock. I think he was the one who realized what was at stake, and he really wanted peace. We find that out a couple of scenes you know, later in the unfortunate uh, part of Gorkon. Um, I feel they cast David Warner perfectly because you didn't know whether or not you could trust him. Gorkon was supposed to look like, as we know, David Warner played many villains in the Star Trek franchise, or I think he played more than the next-gen uh, villain in uh, Chain of Command, I think. Of course, he's very famous for that, and very famous for this uh, in the Star Trek universe. Um, no, I think they needed an actor that was imposing, and you know, you kind of see him first, and you think, well, it's David Warner. He must be the villain. You know, but Gorkon is is not. He's at the dinner and very uncomfortable with what's being said. Uh, he is, I think, just as um, logical, I, I, for lack of a better word, as Spock, realizing why they need the Federation. But also, I think he's tired of the fighting. Um, he is showing his daughter, right? Because his daughter wanted to continue these peace talks. Um, she was not one of the Klingons who were totally against this. Um, so I think the, the introduction of Gorkon, then we see Chang and we're like, oh, uh, maybe Gorkon's okay. I don't know about this guy. And of course, Christopher Plummer is having a ball. I mean, I'm an actor, so I can see some of the things that he's doing. He is having the time of his life with this character and he nails this character and he's, you can't keep your eyes off him. Um, the minute, uh, I think they said they wanted to design him like a samurai uh, a, a warrior. And that's why he's got the eye patch and the, 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 that bald head with the, you know, with the braid and Chang, of course, being his name. <clears throat> and um, I just really love that. And I love the dinner scene. The dinner scene is getting way more intense. The, uh, the, the the conflicts between them of the years of fighting, you know, 
um, really shines through here. Um, and I don't have much else to say except, you know, Warner, Consummate, and Christopher Plummer, both these consummate, amazing character actors who, even though Warner, Warner too, though, even though he, you know, once you see Chang, you're like, okay, something's going on with this guy. He is at the head of the table and he, he, he also um, very much has the same imposing nature as Plummer. They're, seeing them both together is, is amazing. Um, and then the last thing I want to say about that is I don't think it was an accident that Amanda Plummer played the villain in the final adventure of the next gen crew together. It was sort of like a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge uh, to Christopher Plummer, who we only lost recently. And he had a long, great life, but boy, do I miss him. And um, Knives Out was a very appropriate final uh, role for him. That's definitely an astute insight. And what I would like to add is vicariously Christopher Plummer, the first bald Klingon. So I appreciate that myself these days. <laughs> what we're gonna <laughs> what we're gonna move on to now is they have a whole lot of Romulan ale at that dinner. And oh, yeah. by the time the Klingons beam off the Enterprise, the main crew is is quite drunk. And that's one of the first times, I mean, except for the time when, uh, what was it, Kirkwin was uh, split in half in the original series and he had, you know, his uh, evil self and his good self and his evil self was just getting like, you know, wrapped up on Saurian brandy. Yeah. So now the crew is quite inebriated. Kirk goes to sleep because he's got a sledgehammer hangover. He tells the, uh, <laughs> he, t- <laughs> he tells the galley, we're never serving Romulan L again. This is just, it's, it's, it's too much. I can't deal with it. He goes to sleep. He's immediately summoned to come onto the Enterprise. And they're noticing some kind of weird neutron radiation coming from the Enterprise. And then all of a sudden, apparently, the Enterprise fires photon torpedoes on Gorkhan's ship. There's two direct hits because, you know, their shields are down. They're not expecting to be in any kind of attack. And then uh, the bridge crew jumps into action. They're looking at it. Scotty looks at the stock of photon torpedoes, and he says, look, we still have a full stock. We didn't fire that. But the, the computer data is showing that it came from the Enterprise. Then a couple of Enterprise, apparently Enterprise officers, dressed in spacesuits, beam on to the Kronos One. Because of the attack, the Kronos One has lost gravity. So everyone's having trouble with their mobility. The Enterprise, apparent Enterprise crew, because they're wearing spacesuits, they have magnetic boots. They walk around and they just start lighting everybody up with phasers. There is, you know, some spectacular scenes, which obviously was using a newer version of computer generated <laughs> imagery showing the klingons being shot and bleeding in glorious fashion then gorkon is attacked and then kirk and mccoy decide to go over to help and things 
kind of take a turn for the worse. Guys, what's your, I want to go your opinions on this entire scene of the attack and then Kirk and McCoy going over what happens and then the ramifications right afterward. So Greg, let's go with you first. Wow. One of my favorite lines here is the way Shatner delivered the line. Yes, Shatner of all people. Sorry. (laughs) Um, And tell them we're unarmed was amazing. This is the point where the movie is, you know, if it was roping you in with the dialogue, now some action happens. And this movie is nail biting. You know, it's it's just this amazing conspiracy espionage, if you will, going on. You don't know what's going on. We saw the the uh, the shots of the torpedo, but there's a mystery to now be solved. I love Star Trek episodes in general where there's a mystery being so- solved. And basically now it becomes Detective Spock. This is the beginning of the Detective Spock uh, story. And it, what the hell just happened? The data bank said they fired. And um, uh, the, but Scotty's saying that we're fully stocked. So, I mean, this should cause reasonable doubt here, but it's what the F is going on at this point. Love this whole thing. This is like, now, if you're not roped into this movie at this point, shut it off because you're not going to get, but this is the pull moment. And uh, yeah, I love it. Okay. Excellent. Dan, what do you think about the whole conflict begins? One of the things that I really like is after the doctor does his best to try and save uh, Gorkon, it's like, and they they start putting the the uh, handcuffs on him. It's like we tried to save him. We tried to save him. And, and you know, as a young guy, I'm like I, I wanted to jump into the screen and try to help the doctor and help Captain Kirk because clearly we as the audience saw that they did try to help. But the Klingons were having none of that. And, uh, and, you know, as we go on, we find out why and we find out what's going to happen next. But that whole thing where, you know, here here you have a medical professional and you have our always protagonist, Captain Kirk, trying to do the right thing and still having life just poo on him, which is very real to real life most of the time. I'm like, whoa, they tried to do the right thing. And it still, you know, went up the creek and it's like, whoa, it was just really heavy as a young guy. And I watched it again today. And it's still that part struck me that the, the doctor is trying to do the right thing and nobody's paying attention. To very, very well said. I would like to move it on to Kyle. What did you think about this whole assault on the Chronos uh, one? Well, I. So with the dinner scene, with the tensions rising, I, I think you, you anticipate that there's going to be some conflict between, uh, between our protagonists and, and the Klingons. And I, I think this is sort of what people were anticipating, which adds to the mystery because you're looking at it, even with as little as I know, going, there's no way they would do this, but it's, it's obvious that they have. So Again, another level to the intelligence of it all is how they're able to create this mystery, knowing full well that this could never possibly happen. So it's it's fun. And I think with as little action as that takes place throughout the film, 
I think that in these moments they have to be, you know, they have, they have to be done almost perfect. I mean, they can't just be little blips of action that serve no purpose. They have to add to the story and they have to be fun at the same time. And I think they find a great balance between the two where they're still driving that film forward and they're driving the story forward. But it really, like Greg said, it really pulls you in in this moment. And it's everything that we anticipated it could possibly be. And it all comes to fruition on this incredible scale. Well, I would, I would like to add a couple of things to this section of the discussion. First, I found it interesting that when McCoy is trying to save Gorkon, he doesn't know Klingon anatomy. So I, I thought that was rather interesting. I'm not sure whether it was a, a, a shortcut. I would think my first thoughts were they don't know Klingon anatomy because much like, again, going back to the Cold War analogy, there wasn't a lot of information exchanged between them. So he was, he was trying, to, trying to help him out, but he couldn't really because... You're so unforthcoming with just basic anatomical knowledge of your species that I, I can't help you. And he's trying to save him like he would save a human. And actually, one of the Klingons actually accuses him of trying to kill him when he's trying to like restart his heart. He's like, he's trying to kill him. He's trying to kill him. So, and then the other thing, which I would like to bring up, and I am going to ask all of you because this is, a big thing I have about this movie. So two parts to this question. First, phasers usually don't make you bleed. They just sort of burn stuff. So now when they're shooting Klingons, it's like blood spurting in spectacular fashion and, you know, using the globules because it's, you know, there's no gravity and everything. That always seemed interesting to me. Second thing which is, this is the big one. Why do Klingons have purple blood? Because in every other aspect, they have red blood. So I want to propose that question to Kyle first. Go for it. Well, I'm going to answer your question with a question, because I wanted to ask you, was that the norm? Because I just, I had to chalk it up as the norm because I didn't know any better. Um, but I mean, hearing you say that, 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 that was unusual that, you know, phasers burned rather than, than causing you to bleed and the blood looking different. Are they trying to in some way let you know ahead of time that this is not what, not what it appears to be? Is that, is, is that something that they're trying to do for us? I, I honestly don't know. Okay. Well, as someone who has, doesn't have a whole lot of experience in, in Trek, I can definitely understand that, that opinion. Mm. I would actually like to turn it over to Greg real quick because I know he's going to have a lot of answers to what you just asked. <laughs> Ken, you have never been more wrong. I have no clue. I, I think <laughs> for much like, much like how in Space Seed, there was a rod there that had never been there before and will never be there again for a uh, for Kirk to, you know, overpower Khan. Yeah, right. But anyway, um, no, I think that that was, uh, first of all, I think they were different powered phasers. Secondly, I am convinced that they used Pepto-Bismol for that blood, um, as, a, as the blood. 
the, the material they used to make that blood. Pepto-Bismol was in that, I'm sure, even though I'm speculating. No, I, I, I kind of feel like these were just different powered phasers. They didn't look like the regular phasers uh, that we had seen uh, in other uh, shows and films. So I'm just going to chalk it up to it was a plot. Device. Okay. Um, Dan, I am very interested to hear about phasers causing bleeding and purple Klingon blood. Yeah, well, I remember back in the day, I might have been reading Starlog, that the reason that they used the purple Klingon blood was because they didn't want to get an R rating or something like that. So they used that type of blood uh, because of the requirements of the MPAA or something like that. I, I really feel that that was a, a Nicholas Myers choice to, you know, somebody from the Enterprise are killing these Klingons in cold blood. Yeah, but as far as the color of the blood, I think it was because they didn't want to get an R rating. And uh, the different phasers, yeah, I think it's just because it's a newer era, so it doesn't look like the TOS phasers. It's just a transitional phaser. But, I mean, it looks cool, but it doesn't look like the old ones. The, uh, the way the blood was shot in zero gravity was very cool looking. I loved that. And I thought that they did overall, all of the zero gravity stuff really well. I was, I was pretty tickled with that the first time I saw it because you hadn't seen a whole lot of zero gravity anything in Star Trek up until, up until that point that I can recall other than like Spock outside on his way to V'ger. That's, you know, something that's actually the best explanation I've heard as to why there is purple blood. I've been wrestling with that idea for, okay, we're talking about almost 30 years. Why the hell is the blood purple? Well, all right, that, that's probably the best description yeah, I've ever I'm heard of. I'm almost certain that I read it in Starlog or one of the, one okay. of the Star Trek magazines back in the day. Okay, that's um, I'm going to buy it and you know, we'll go on from there. That's our story and we're sticking to it. So we'll do that. So, uh, Kyle, what do you think of the assault? Uh, I mean, again, I think that this needs to be like it needs to be the coolest part of the film. I mean, we already have the, in the intellect and we already have incredible dialogue and we've already developed incredible characters. And I think we need to see something that's different that again drives the story forward and it's a lot of fun i mean them kill them killing klingons in cold blood shouldn't be a lot of fun but it really is it's it's a really cool journey to you know to see them floating in zero gravity and and almost i mean effectively being defenseless it's it was one of the coolest parts of the entire film and i really enjoyed it probably more than i should have watching klingons die <laughs> you know and i mean one thing i have to add i really like the design of the spacesuits you get to see it had a little bit of i'm trying to remember which movie but it, it when they had the the engineering suits and it had that plug on the chest it had that aspect to it the helmets were really awesome i just i really enjoyed i liked those spacesuits better than the ones from first contact because obviously the ones from first contact were constructed in a way that you could see the actors faces in total these ones had little more of a uh 
I almost like to say it looked like a, a like a Gundam GM, if anybody knows what that is. They, they had that kind of look to it. And I appreciated that. And I've always liked that design. So basically, we're going to move on from here. So basically, when Gorkon is dying and they're trying to save him, which is very important, is Gorkon asked Kirk not to let it end this way. So you can see that he genuinely, he was willing to give his life for this because he's willing to give his life for the Klingon people. And he's willing to not necessarily surrender, but enter into a partnership with a, you know, a group that they've been historically opposed to, but realizing in order to commit to survival, they have to commit to some kind of, you know, reconciliation. So at that point, of course, Chang, because he's always the warrior, and as he says in space, all warriors are cold warriors, which is if, if that's not a, a, a specific, you know, point to, yes, this movie is about the Cold War. It, it's, I mean, it's, it's so obvious. It's ridiculous. But Kirk is arrested. McCoy is arrested. Spock takes command of the ship. And then the Klingons go to the president of the Federation, who happens to be a Klingon. Kind of weird, but, you know, works. No, and he's he he's not Kurtwood Smith. He's not a Klingon. No, he's he's not. I thought I thought it was a. Uh, I, I, yeah, I was wondering about that. It, yeah, yeah, I was wondering about that. He certainly looks like a Klingon. He was the Federation president. I think we saw him. Yeah, we saw him in the other movies, too. I know in four. It would be very weird that he's a Klingon because then he's a Klingon that it is obviously would they would see, well, some of the Klingons are for peace. Um, but I think they made a point of in in I don't know whether it was canon or it was I don't think he's a Klingon. I think he's a cousin species, you know, much like Vulcans and, and Romulans. But maybe well, that Martin, makes sense. maybe yeah, maybe you know more than that that that's definite, that that's what it was. I think he's an Afrosian. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, Afrosian. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and is that a cousin species of the Klingons? They're a humanoid species with red-orange skin, forehead ridges, and white blonde hair. They're members of the Federation, serving both in Starfleet and in Federation government. Due to yeah. their unique evolution, a majority of Afrosians are born blind. When traveling off their homeworld, they often need to use devices to see such as special glasses. One of the most famous Afrosians was Federation President Ra Goratelli, who served from 2289 to 2300, and in 2293, he was closely involved with the Kitama Accords. It is rumored that addressing Afrosians by name is an insult to their religion, though obviously those in the public light don't always follow this. A notable Afrosians scrolling through appearances, background, name for the species, never appeared in any script dialogue or production graphic, Noted in Paramount's publicity photos in Star Trek VI, the name Afrosian was invented by Kirk Thatcher. You remember him on the bus with his boombox, an associate producer from Star Trek IV. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and Muppeteer. Uh, it's based on Mel Efros, but it doesn't say anything about them being cousins to Klingons. But yeah, if they were to do that makeup with dark hair, he would certainly look like a Klingon. Well, sort thank of. you so but much. His, his forehead yeah, ridges are yeah. dramatically different, though. 
Yeah, that's a little I weird that it's not explained, but thank you so much for clarifying that. I'm a dork. I love yeah, that's yeah. yeah, that's that's you know something that's always been a thing for me, and I guess you know from all the way back then watching it for the first time, you look at this guy and he was like, oh, oh, he's he's a Klingon, but he's a more civilized Klingon. So you know, and they're they're trying to you know bridge that gap. I, I I'm can understand why it's very confusing. Kyle. Does that does that clear it up for you? Did you think he was a Klingon? As well. I absolutely thought he was a Klingon. I, I was actually very confused <laughs> why he was significantly different than the rest. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dan. Mark. Something new every day. Hey, anytime, mm-hmm. anytime. The, the okay, magic so, of the Internet. If we'd have had if we'd have had the Internet back when we were kids, we'd have been looking up stuff right during the movie. Well, some of us weren't born yet. I'm old. So basically, uh, we move on. They go in and ask the president for a trial. And then we see Sarek is there. And he was obviously there negotiating between the Klingons and the Federation. He feels that it's better for them to negotiate, just as Spock has said, because if we negotiate with the Klingons, we can form a more cohesive structure and end all these years of conflict rather than have Klingons say, you know what, if we're going to die anyway, we're just going to kamikaze the whole thing. So he felt that it was important to start that. That's why he got Spock involved. And we go on from there. The Enterprise is recalled because they want to bring them back and they kind of want to, you know, talk to the entire crew and find out everything that happened because of the, you know, Photon, torpe- uh, photon to- torpedo firing, and they fake damage. They decide to say, "Oh, we're 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 too damaged to come back," which is a a, 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 a common Star Trek thing. The and I love how discuss- Scott reacts to Spock when he asks him that. He's like, "Oh no, we're perfectly fine." And he asks me, and he's like, "Ah, it'll take us a couple of weeks." Yeah, yeah, that's, that's always I, I love interaction between Nimoy and Duan. Yeah, yeah, and it and it always goes back to I, I always love the conversation which you know moves on it comes in the future of Duan talking to uh, or Scotty talking to Jordy, and when he says, "How long did you take?" Tell him it's going to take to fix you know this thing. And he's like three hours, and he goes, "How long is it him how really going to take?" Gonna take? Yeah, right. And he's brilliant. like three hours. And he's like, tell him how long it's going to take. You're never going to get a reputation as a miracle worker. If you really tell him how long it's going to take. just, just perfect. And it just, you know, it just flows right from that section. I thought that was fantastic. And also how basically Valeris comes up with the idea, you know, with explaining how the, the genesis of the word sabotage. So yeah, she's, she's still he, playing. She's still playing them. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So the they um they discuss their next action. The Klingons discuss their next actions, and the Enterprise, well, Kirk and McCoy are put on trial. And this is one of the greater scenes in the movie because you know it's it's like you know your usual like courtroom intrigue, but some of the best interactions christopher Plummer is great in this role there's a specific line in this scene 
that I love so much. But I want you guys to go and talk about the courtroom scene because there's a lot of things in there that we can dissect. So I want to go with Greg first. Well, I absolutely love that they use Kirk's words against him. You know, this is, uh, and yes, Plummer rules this scene. Of course, here where you see Ancestor of Worf, Colonel Worf, because that's the foreshadowing too, that we did make peace, peace with the Klingons. And everything always starts out effed up when you're making peace with bitter enemies. And here it is with, with Michael Dorn. And he's the, um, the defense attorney. He's a Klingon uh, a defense attorney, which is awesome that we're getting that foreshadowing of Worf, the first uh, Klingon in Starfleet. Um, yes, it, it's very powerful, very dramatic stuff. It's a parable at its best. Um, you know, I can't say enough great things about it. The performance is really all around, but this was like watching Christopher Plummer um, do Shakespeare. You know, I, I've never seen him do theater, but that's of course where he got his start and what he was, you know, amazing at. And here you really can see this was like theater, this scene and the Klingons that are, you know, they want these guys guilty just for who they are. And this is giving, I like how this movie gave the crew something to do. You had, uh, I know I'm digressing a little bit, you had Chekhov as the comic relief in this film. You had Scotty finally get involved and do some amazing things in the film. Scotty uh, always or, uh, does amazing things. No, no, right, but he played a very pivotal part in solving oh, everything. Awesome. And, yeah, and um, Kyle, that's Dan Martin's favorite character, Scotty, just so you know. that's the um, And... Um, yeah, it's a very powerful scene, and I love that it's broadcast because that is the that was the start of Court TV back in that in those days. Court TV, and then I remember how all of them saying, "Oh God, they're broadcasting it, making it a big thing." The Klingons love, much like the Cardassians later loved to sensationalize the trials, and everything was about the the trials, and it's always like. Yeah, once you're accused from something of the Klingons and then later the Cardassians, you're guilty. They're, they're going to make you guilty. You're guilty <laughs> if, if you're accused. But when you see Kirk, this was one of the stronger, you know, Shatner performances. Of course, he brings it in the movies. That's, you know, he does bring it in the movies. Those words were spoken by D. me. Kelly's great there, too. Oh, of course. Of course. These words were spoken by me. And he's so vulnerable when he says that. And he's got nothing to say. He's got nothing to defend himself. No, there's no proof that they fired the torpedoes and that he assassinated Gorkon, but that is such a powerful moment of going, you got me there. I said these words. How those words were sent as evidence, we don't know yet, but yeah, amazing. All right, Kyle, what do you feel about the very powerful trial scene? So I think those three scenes that we get in a row, you get the, the, uh, the dinner scene and then you get the action scene. Um, and I, I think one is obviously building on, on the previous and it's getting more and more intense and tensions are rising and, and, but those things make sense. And I, I mean, it's obvious the relationships that exist at that point and you're expecting those conversations and you're expecting some bit of hostility, whether it's verbal or physical to, to happen at some point. Um, but in this courtroom scene, I feel like that is the most intense that the film gets. 
I mean, it's so real in that moment because you, you, I think you understand, even though you don't know definitively, I think you understand that these two men are innocent and to see, see, uh, you know, the system play out in the way that it does. It's very much a mirror of the things that happen in real life. And I, it really sucked me in, in that, in that moment. And I, I think if there was any point where I was going to cry during the film, I think it would have been there knowing that these two characters that are obviously very important to a large fan base and now have grown on me very quickly are being treated so poorly for no reason at all. So I think narratively it's, it's beautiful and it mirrors the real world so, so incredibly well. And it's again, one of, one of the better scenes in the in, entire film. That is excellent. Uh, Dan, what did you think about our courtroom drama? Well, I had to love the whole thing. I mean, as far as Michael Dorn at that time, when it came out, I was a huge next gen fan. So I squeed like a little girl when Michael Dorn showed up. I was impressed with the fact that even though he's an ancestor, they didn't use the same forehead appliance. So the makeup department was like on top of things. They're like, yeah, maybe he's from his mom's side. So he's got, you know, a little bit of a different forehead look to him. But just hearing that rich, powerful Michael Dorn voice in that scene was like, oh, yeah, I really want that guy to cut some commercials with me, you know, because he's just got such a great voice. And uh, but Jim, you know, the weakness that he has and and the fear that Bones has of what's coming next and everybody really does a great job. And you got to give props, not necessarily even in that scene, but every Klingon that we we get that has a large speaking role. John Shuck, I've loved him for years. We've got, um, oh my gosh, I'm, I knew his name because he's been in everything. Uh, when, when they go to the next scene after that, um, his son's big in sci-fi too. He was on Supernatural. And, uh, but that particular actor, he's great too. Everybody does such a great job in this film all the way through. Okay, so before we move on, there's some more comments we have to speak about this scene. Yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, on speaking of Michael Dorn, you know, this was setting up for Next Gen's universe, but Next Gen at that point had been on, I think if it was, this came out in November of 91, so I think it was in its third season. Yeah, it was great that they tied him no, in. No, fifth season, I'm sorry, fifth season. Well, I remember, I, and I saw it on the Saturday it opened, so 1991, and I remember this fondly, where there were some parents, it was called Star Trek, and parents had brought their kids there to see the end of their TOS crew, but these kids were fans of Next Gen, and the fact that they put Michael Dorn in there was brilliant to show that connection, and at that point, tied Next it in Gen for was, the generations. Right, it was hugely popular, and yes, Star Trek Generations, the next movie, yes, and, and Next Gen- No, I mean the generations point. of viewers. Oh, no, correct, but then generations, you know, the the first scene in Generations, you know, was the picked up oh, where this Dorn's one left great off. great that too, yeah. Exactly. But yes, this, uh, the, the kids, I remember kids being like in a couple of rows and going, okay, so that's Spock and that's Kirk or whatever. But when Michael Dorn came on screen, yay! 
You know, yet yep, this yep. is connected to the show I watch every week. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yes, I de- definitely fantastic. And I also, one thing I would be remiss if I did not mention this about the courtroom scene. My favorite moment from it is when Christopher Plummer's character Chang is interrogating uh, McCoy and Kirk and he starts getting heated and then he starts yelling at them. Don't wait for the translation. Answer me now. You know, that, that was, I thought that was such a powerful scene that just the idea that, you know, they were listening through translators. He didn't even care what they had to say. Uh, Greg, what do you got to say about that? Oh, and that was also uh, indicative of McCoy's amazing sense of humor. And even Chang felt compelled to say that. It took me right back to Space Seed with, uh, well, what are you going to do? Choke me or stab me? And I'm speculating it was so Carl Urban. So many aspects of what was to come with Carl Urban's McCoy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then he was like, we were trying to save him. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? It was, it, it was just such a great scene. And I, I just, again, goes back to how fantastic Christopher Plummer was in that role. Okay, so basically at this point, we move on. The trial is concluded. They're supposed to be given the death sentence. But the judge says, in interest of, you know, interstellar peace, we're just going to give them life in prison on a frozen prison world where they're just probably going to die anyway. So they go down there, they're imprisoned, and then Spock, again, playing, um, <laughs> playing Detective Spock, who literally says that Sherlock Holmes was one of his ancestors. So that's always a, a funny thing to do. And, and they kind of figure out that probably because they still have a full complement of photon torpedoes that they did not launch it. And then there's a bird of prey that probably launched it. But when bird of preys are cloaked, they can't launch weapons. So now we introduce uh, an entirely other you know, uh, we introduce an entire other aspect into this, that now there's a new weapon available. There's something else that the Klingons have been working on. And now there's a whole new game being played. So Kirk and McCoy are taken to Rurapenthe. They're brought down there and they graphically show you, they throw somebody out on the surface of the planet and they die quite quickly. And then like Michigan in January, like, (laughs) (laughs) and then, uh, Kirk and McCoy meet very interesting woman, Martia played by Iman, David Bowie's wife. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Bowie's wife, which is, that's always again, the history of Trek bringing these different people from different aspects who were like ridiculously famous and then just throwing them into it. So first thing I want to ask Kyle, what did you think of the beginning of when, you know, they, they, first of all, try to figure out that perhaps they didn't launch the torpedoes. And then secondly, their experience on Rurapenthe. 
so again, they're they're adding to this narrative very well. There's there's almost nothing part of this film except for a few you know a few jokes and and pop culture references that don't add to the narrative. So we're constantly building on what we already know, and we're we're developing a very layered mystery that just every step of the way becomes more intense and more intriguing. And I don't think there was any point where. I, I mean, you you could take a breath because every time you think you kind of have figured something out, they add something else to it. So I enjoy that about it. I enjoy I enjoy that they never relent. I enjoy that they're constantly giving us new information and and regularly giving us new information that allows us to remain focused and attentive throughout. Because I mean, mysteries can obviously fall to the wayside very quickly if they don't do a good job, a good job of remaining mysterious. That's not the case with this. They do a great job with that. And then um, their, their time on Repente, if I'm saying that correctly, um, it was, again, it was very intense because you see them throw the one guy out into the snow and he dies almost instantly. So where I had mentioned earlier, my one gripe with the film was that I don't know if the stakes were quite high enough for individual characters where I was worried that they were, were you know, ultimately going to meet their demise. I felt in that moment that there was the potential for someone to, to die. There was someone that we cared about possibly going to die in, in the near future. And I enjoyed that about that because again, we're adding another level to this narrative and another level to the intensity. And it just, every step of the way becomes more and more powerful. Excellent. Uh, Dan, what do you think? Oh, Rua Pente. And it's funny because for ever since then, you know, when it gets cold here in Michigan, I'm always like, oh my gosh, it's colder than Rua Pente. And people are like, what? <laughs> I'm like, Hoth? Oh, I'm like, Rua Pente is the Star Trek frozen place. And they're like, ah. Oh. So then I try to get them to watch this movie so that they can understand more. And uh, yeah, Iman is excellent in there. And I get a kick out of, I got to look his name up that I was talking about earlier. He's been in everything. And uh, he was just really great as the jailer on Ruapente. And his name is William Morgan, uh, William Morgan Shepard. And he's been in everything, like over 100 films, TV shows. He was in Doctor Who. He was in, uh, you, you name it. He's been in everything. I love him. And, he, and it's fun because if you're watching any kind of sci-fi or TV, or he shows up in it. I'm like, there he is again. And now his son shows up in everything. Supernatural, Doctor Who, you name it. I love that kind of thing. And his role's not huge, but he does a good job. And uh, I like the big brutish character that intimidates Kirk at the beginning. He wants his jacket and Kirk's like, it wouldn't even fit him. Yeah, that's great. And then the other alien where he picks Kirk up and they're fighting and arguing and stuff like that. Kirk kicks him in the knee, which is where his genitals turn out to be. That is a lighthearted moment. And that's um, Martia explaining to Kirk, you know, not, not everybody's genitals are in the same place. And uh, but I think overall, the entire best line on Ruapente is when McCoy looks over 
and Martia is kissing Kirk and McCoy looks at him and I forget exactly what the line is, but it was like really everywhere we go, basically kind of a deal. You always find some good looking woman to kiss. And what is it with you anyway? What is it with you anyway? Yeah, that's exactly the line. And I saw the thing just two and a half hours ago and I've already not, I'm not, I'm horrible at remembering lines, which is why when I, when I'm in things, I practice them relentlessly. So that, I mean, that's, that's just my great moment. My favorite moment there is McCoy. I rambled. <laughs> All right, Greg, what you got about that sec, that sequence. Okay. This was one part of the movie. I feel Nicholas Meyer should have cut. It's very creepy. Who agrees with me when Martia morphs into a child and winks at Kirk? Sorry, take that out. That was weird. Okay. Yeah, this is continuing. Uh, but that aside, this can, first of all, unless it's a Mandela effect, I'd like to say, I remember Bowie, something about Amon taking the role because Bowie was a Star Trek fan. Don't quote me on that because I know there was a lot of people that was like, um, oh, who was it? Uh, Iggy Pop big Star Trek fan, they put him in DS9. Jason Alexander, yeah. big Star Trek fan. This very Big movie, Fleetwood was in TNG. This very movie, who had a cameo there on the Excelsior, Mr. Christian Slater, because he had to be in the last movie with the original series crew. Because and his they, mother was the probably, casting director. Well, maybe that helps. a little nepotism. It helps, yeah. but he had to be in it. No, he requested. And so, hey, they got him a little part. Um, so if I remember correctly, Bowie was a Star Trek fan, and so his wife was in it. Um, so we know that there were all those, you know, cameos uh, it, throughout the entire franchise of, hey, Whoopi Goldberg, Guinan, all because she was a fan. So that's how special Star Trek was. And I should also, uh, before I forget, um, every time I watch this movie at some point, I cry because I remember, you know, being a kid, knowing this was the last time we were going to see them all together. And it was. It's not the last time we saw Kirk, but it's the last time we saw the original team together and the last time we saw um, some of them in action. Although I, I think I think Ahura might be the only one we ne- we never saw again. Uh, we technically got a little piece of Chekhov's lineage just recently. Uh, oh, and of course, Generations, the beginning of Generation. So this was the first this was the last time, though, it was a legit adventure. So I always find myself tearing up, but I digress. I mean, but to Rura Pinte, I mean, I'm, all I'm going to say is, is expand on what Kyle said. It's, it's another, I mean, this movie never stops being powerful, you know, and it's, it's, this is their punishment. You think they're going to die. Um, and uh, this is, it, it was awesome. Even though it was a happy accident, she was a shape-shifting, um, a shape-shifting uh, uh, species but DS9 knew well enough not to make it the same species that she was when we saw the founders, the big villains of DS9 and recently Picard. So uh, that was nice that they kept continuity like that. And I especially love the comic moments that they put with uh, her morphing into uh, a Kirk and having them be two Kirks, a little comic part. Um, uh, we've, you know, uh, I, I want to give us other chances to talk about uh, the fabulous, uh, this fabulous film moving forward. So I, I don't have much more to say about Rura Pente, except it, it made the intense, it was more the intensity and the stakes are high while the enterprise is trying to figure out how the hell to get them out of this. Yeah. I think it's also was uh, again, one of a 
one of the really great lines in the film is when she morphs into Kirk and doesn't she say something like, like you were always in love with yourself or something like that. Isn't there like something like that was, you've been waiting your whole life for this or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like it it couldn't, it, that could not have been better. Cause you're like, yeah, yeah. Kirk really, you know, thinks he's uh, the best there is. And you know, there you go. It was, it was a super easy, barely an inconvenience moment in, and, and typical of Star Trek to do a last minute save that she did morph into Kirk so that they would shoot her by mistake, you know, shoot the, that creature by mistake so that Kirk could get back on the ship uh, when they beam him up. But still, it was very enjoyable. And also just an aside as a difficult to accept moment. Kirk, at his age and the shape that he was, was able to defeat that huge alien. <laughs> and he didn't even do a double kung fu jump kick. The, the second time I did the rewatch for this conversation, they didn't seem as, I mean, being in your 60s today isn't like it was in 1991. And we, of course, we all know Shatner's, you know, doing great today. But um, the first time I watched it, I don't know, maybe it was my mood or I'm like, they were kind of old to star in this movie. But the second time I watched it, I thought that, you know, on this rewatch, the opposite. I'm like, damn, they all look great. And that doesn't take away from anything. Okay. So moving on, we find after the fight between Kirk and Martia, and then they, you know, phaser her and she gets disintegrated, which again goes back to speak to my point about phasers disintegrate. They don't make you bleed. They are able to escape and they materialize on the transporter pads. And then Mr. Scott discovers the uniforms with the Klingon blood on them. They define two of their crewmen dead, killed by a phaser stun at close range. I mean, it looks literally like, what is it? They shot him in the head with a phaser at close range. And then... They're the ones that were to guard the transporter room and then lure out the assassin. But an announcement is made that uh, the court reporter, you know, to sickbay that the statements will be taken from both of them as if they were only injured. They weren't actually killed. So someone walks into the sickbay and it's Valeris carrying a phaser. And she can't believe that Kirk and Spock are the ones laying in the beds that were supposed to be the dead crewmen. So Spock, oh, very obviously in a not Vulcan way, is upset in this situation, slaps the phaser out of her hand. He, he begs her to shoot him, and he doesn't. And then they go on the bridge. Valaris denies killing anybody. But then they, d- they disagree with her and probably one of their greatest scenes in this movie, this one thing I love, which is it's equally disturbing as it is powerful. Spock forces a mind meld on her. It's, you could literally define it as he's doing a mind rape and it's very, and <laughs> This is Kim Cattrall is really good at doing this. Like she really displays it accurate, like appropriately that like he, 
he's abusing her full on. Yeah, it freaks and, me and, out still to this day. Yeah, it very very powerful. So Dan, well, the scene yeah. of them finding the boots and then finding the dead crewman and then Spock doing the thing he did. I love the fact that Scotty finds the bloody uh, spacesuits. I think that that's always a good thing. Anytime Scotty gets to do something heroic. Uh, I enjoy the moment. It's a little bit before that when, you know, they say, hey, if the shoe fits, wear it. And then you look down and the the one guy has completely non-human shaped feet. So there's a chuckle there and there's a moment of levity. But uh, once you get into that moment with Spock and Valeris, it's like scary how intense Spock is and how tortured Valeris is by this forest mind meld. It's, it's the most uncomfortable thing I've ever seen Spock do. It makes me just cringe as a viewer. I'm like, whoa, Spock. I mean, I know why he's doing it, but it's bad form. Really Except, bad. Dan, we just, we just discussed that episode that was of the original series that was about patriotism. He kind of does that to a woman in that episode. But of course, this was creepier. Okay, continue. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was just really, really uncomfortable. I'm like, oh my gosh. Still shakes me up looking at it because Spock is such a beloved character, and he's doing something that just seems like such a violation of some uh, another person. So yeah, it's rough. That is. It seems absolutely true. I'm really interested to hear what Kyle has to say about this because. I thought this, like I said before, I think this was one of the more powerful scenes in the movie and probably the most disturbing scene in the movie. So I, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to hear his opinion. So before I do, can you guys clarify a little bit what exactly is a mind meld? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so go. basically Vulcans are partially telepathic. Okay. So what they do is by, you saw how like he put his fingers on her face. Mm. It's a thing where they are um, kind of contacting certain nerve centers that will connect to the brain. And then that way they can get a direct contact to your mind. So they basically, their minds, they usually have, a a saying that they say they usually have a chant that they do when My they mind do to your mind your mind to mind yes yeah. right exactly so the basically the idea is they are bringing both of their minds together and they're going to exist as one mind together for that time that they're in contact but you've never seen it forced on someone before it was always right. um a willing thing and now this is the first time you saw this was an interrogation technique or a, a well, it was a violation. Mm. And Romulans have the ability to do it, too. OK, so, I mean, even not knowing the specific details of it, I could tell that it was incredibly intense. I could tell that she was in significant pain and I could tell that this was meant to be a very uncomfortable scene. Um. I, I, I said it over and over again. What they do so well is connecting this film 
to viewers with with viewers even ones that aren't familiar with the lore and aren't familiar with the characters and aren't familiar with with most of the things that go on in these films and the television series um and this is another really good example of that where again i just had to ask you guys to clarify but i still understood the purpose and i still understood for all intents and purposes what was happening in that moment and I, I again, I've said it a few times. Every step of the way becomes more intense than the last, and I, I think we hit the the epitome of that intensity in this moment and in this scene. this scene. But also, I think we're forced to question: Does she deserve it? I mean, we see these horrible things happen throughout the course of the film, and I think it's uh, I think it's great when they can force viewers to ask questions like that. And they do here because I, I, for a few seconds, thought she legitimately deserved something like this after all of the pain and suffering she caused and all of the deaths that she had caused throughout the course of this film. I, I love that scene. And like I said, I had really no idea who she was outside of sex in the city up to this point. And she was fantastic. That is that that's that's really that's actually quite powerful. It's good to see someone that you know, doesn't really know the entire series just to see the, the importance of that scene. The, the brilliance of Star and, Trek, you know, yeah. It, cinephiles like Kyle tend to love the Star Trek movies, even if they aren't fans of the series. A great example of that is Siskel and Ebert, who were not fans of the Star Trek series. But when a movie, when a Star Trek movie was good, Damn it, they acknowledged when it was good. And this is one of the ones they enjoyed. All right, so let's move, move ahead. Same situation, Greg. Well, I'm only going to comment on Spock here. While I don't advocate for someone assaulting someone, as you said, this was an interrogation technique. The stakes are high here. Spock is all about doing what's the good. I just made a quip to Dan Martin about one episode where Spock used telepath telepathic powers in the original series. And sometimes it's uncomfortable seeing Spock do this stuff because of how I love Vulcans and how logical they are and that they, but they do things much like how Spock, uh, I don't want to give away too much to Kyle because I'm sure he'll watch it. The Wrath of Khan, what Spock had to do at the end of that movie. Um, Spock was all about, and Vulcans were all about the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Look, Spock is pissed here. So pissed that he showed it. He had faith in Valaris. He wanted Valaris to succeed him. He was, he gave Valaris the recommendation to go into Starfleet and she committed espionage and conspiracy. He, when he throws the phaser out of her hand, that's a powerful moment, especially if you know Spock. If you don't know Spock, it's powerful. He had no choice but to do the mind melt. He had no choice. The, the peace talks, the assassination plan was going to happen. They had to act quick. They had minutes. And so he had to do what he had to do. And when you find out the four conspirators, the three other than her, wow, you're shocked, of, especially about Cartwright, you know? So this was, this was a powerful scene, but I'm going to not, but for lack of a better word, I'm going to defend Spock. He did what he had to do. Yeah, a I quick did. bit of background for Kyle. Spock, his mom is from Earth, so he's half Vulcan and mm -hmm. half human. So that's why sometimes when it's written that way, 
he will lose it and get emotional, but it's, it's really cool when he does because he doesn't do it very often, but his mom's from earth. Cool. Cool. And as he was, as we see in later films, he, he was, you know, kind of persecuted against with Vulcan bigotry, which is something that you wouldn't think existed, but it, it obviously did. And, Spock grew up with that for a long time in his life. So at this point, the Kirk is speaking to Spock and they both admit that they have certain prejudices that Kirk is prejudiced because of what happened to his son. And Spock is prejudiced because of his trust in Valaris and they've, you know, kind of failed each other in a way. So it's, it's a way of basically a moment of catharsis. And then we get to see that the Kittimer conference is beginning and um, Enterprise is, is racing toward the Kittimer Accord. And they're wondering, you know, where, where do these torpedoes come from? And if it's a cloaked ship, is it still near us? And then they locate the surge of neutron radiation and they find out that there's a bird of prey right underneath their hull. And then Chang decides to taunt Kirk and say, warrior to warrior, don't you prefer that we're enemies? Which goes again, right back to the whole situation of the cold war. As there were many people Shouldn't we be enemies? I mean, really, it's better that way, isn't it? And then Chang, of course, to be or not to be, and he decides to try you know, to try and fire on him. Enterprise can't return fire. Chang's doing his, you know, his uh, scene chewing up, and you know, then we move on to the Excelsior trying to get to Kittimer. Another great line of the movie, the helmsman is saying, we're going to fly her apart. And Sulu, love his voice, fly her apart then. So before we get... Exactly. (laughs) Before we get into the Kittimer settlement, what do you guys think about the whole part of, you know, that initial engagement? So this is basically the first time that you're going to see Chang and Kirk going up against each other in a, in a starship battle. And then again, just the, the Shakespearean quotes flying like crazy. Greg, what do you think about it? Well, um, you know, it was definitely a little bit of an ode to Wrath of Khan in this scene. Um, you know, that's why they got Nicholas Meyer back to do this movie. It's perfect for the... Um, penultimate scene before the actual climax of the film. Um, And, you know, Chang being the semi-main antagonist, um, it's it's a perfect, uh, you know, demise for our villain. And, you know, again, ups the ante for the, uh, I really don't have much more to say, but it ups the ante for the nail-biting conclusion that we're about to get in Kittimer. Okay, let's. Uh, we're going to move it over to Kai right now. What What did you think about this? This was again one of the great Shakespearean quotes. What do you think about uh, this sequence? 
So I, I think in this moment, they're combining that intelligence with the action in, in a way that we hadn't seen quite yet. We'd seen, we, we'd obviously heard and seen the intelligence throughout the entirety of the film. And we had seen, you know, this, those instances of, of action that obviously played a pivotal role, but were a lot of fun. And here we're combining the two in a way that feels very appropriate as the film comes to a conclusion. Um, I, I think as we move towards towards that end, we need to have that combination. We need to have that juxtaposition of action and intelligence uh, sort of battling it out alongside uh, our, our, the characters as well. And while it remains incredibly fun throughout that throughout throughout that that series of action, the intelligence really really gives it another level of of something that forces you to remain focused and just doesn't allow you to look away and just prepare for for what's to come next. That quite appropriate, Dan. What you got? It's just building and building and building. And it's like, man, they're going to have to save the day quick. And uh, the fight and the way that the Klingon ship blows up. And it's like, oh, man, we're hitting home now. We're in the home stretch. And uh, you know that the the climax is just going to be edge of the seat because of how it's building and how it's working. And it's like, but still it has, like uh, Kyle was saying, that intelligent dialogue, that smartness to it. So you've got action and great writing, and it's a perfect combination. And I, what I always really enjoyed was this is the entire battle sequence between the Enterprise and the Bird of Prey when, you know, again, you know, Inspector Spock manages to figure out that, well, they're venting plasma exhaust, so we can, you know, figure it out from there. And that's what it gets into the entire uh, giving the enterprise the advantage. And then that's, I mean, you're getting a constant barrage of just all these Shakespearean quotes. This is what was, I think, possibly one of the greatest things about the movie was just Shakespearean quote, Shakespearean quote. And, and just Plummer does it so great. And it's actually very poignant the way that he does it. So it was really a great sequence, just that, that battle scene. And it, it made it really great. Uh, Dan, you got something to say? Oh, yeah. And, but also, it's cool that Uhura gets to be the one that says, well, it has to have a tailpipe. So it allows her an opportunity to do something more than just say hailing frequencies open or whatever. She's like, yeah, I bet you we can find that exhaust coming out of there somewhere. And so it's, it's great. And then you've got Bones and Spock setting up the torpedo and they're ready to go. Excellent. They, so now, after we move to that finished battle, we see that there's the Kittimer negotiations. We're panning through the crowd, and you see Cartwright in there, and he's sweating for some reason. So yeah. then, <laughs> yeah, we see and Brock their Peters beginning. Is amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in and everything. Then, yeah, no, he, he was he was like so good in that just the the anger that he would portray and then right after that the fear that he could portray is just you know is fantastic and then we move on the the president of the federation is beginning to give his speech and you see there is 
somebody lining up a phaser rifle. And then, of course, as it is in Star Trek fashion, Kirk beams down just in time to save everybody. <laughs> so it, you know, it wouldn't be any other way. Um, Cartwright is... Shout still, out to Scotty. But, yeah, shout out oh, to Scotty yeah. for assassinating the assassin. Scotty gets up there yes. and he takes him out. I'm watching that, taking pictures of my TV today, going, "Yeah, Scotty, I'm posting this on Facebook." Doesn't it, doesn't he like shoot him, and he like falls over like the edge of the railing, he and falls does like out a- the glass. He, oh, the glass, okay, yeah, gla- and he he goes through right. the glass, and he falls down onto the ground, and you just go, "Man, Scotty is bad." I mean, he's not just capable of fixing stuff, you know. He's He's capable of taking somebody out if he needs to. Just love it. Absolutely. So basically after they, you know, get rid of the assassin, everybody comes in, they, they save the president. They, <laughs> Scott, you know, kicks in the door to the assassin's hiding place, like you said, shoots him before he can kill Valaris as well. So they find out that it's not a Klingon, but it's Colonel West. Cartwright tries to flee, but then Sulu beats him down. And then he transports from the Excelsior and holds them there. So then Gorkhan's daughter is confused about what's going on. He says that this is all basically, you know, some kind of plot to try and drive a wedge between us. And thinking of Gorkhan's reference to the future as the undiscovered podcast, excuse me, undiscovered country, Kirk notes that people are frightened of change, which is true. And just as Gorkhan had said to Kirk, in this brave new world, he actually said in this brave new world, people like you and I are going to have the hardest time getting used to it, which is as it is with many things. And the and Gorkhan's daughter tells Kirk that she he has just restored her her father's faith in him. And then at this moment, of course, in a you know movie version fashion, everybody stands up and starts applauding. All right, so you know it, it wouldn't be any other way. So oh, Dan, yeah. first, what do you think about you know the the conclusion and? you know, the assassination attempt and the obviously original series style rescue. Uh, It's just exciting, edge of your seat stuff. And I love how Sulu comes in at the last minute. Scotty saves the day by taking out the assassin. Everybody gets something to do. And I mean, just even the non-speaking stuff, you look at the people's faces in the crowd and everybody is bringing it. You know, you think about extras and, and how hard it must be as an extra to, to act with only your face. You're not necessarily doing any words or dialogue, but everybody in that scene, as you look around, they're in it. They're in it to win it. Great, fun, fun, fun stuff. Absolutely. Kyle, what do you think of basically the climax of the movie? So like Dan said, it's very much a collective effort. And I like when, I mean, when you have an ensemble cast like this, it's always hard 
for them to always have, you know, to play a role in the conclusion of a film. And it, when you fall in love with characters that don't get to participate in, you know, the film's conclusion or get to be the hero, it's always disappointing. So to get to see everyone play a role and everyone get to be the hero in, in their own way is a lot of fun. And it's very rewarding after sitting there and getting to know these characters and, and effectively falling in love with them the way that I did um, for them to be able to have their moment for them to be able to have their moment um, was, was really a lot of fun. And so, you know, you guys mentioned the, like the original series conclusion, or maybe it's a little cheesy and that's how I always anticipated Star Trek would be if I'm being honest, but with how good the rest of the film is, that's very welcome. I was very, I was very okay with that. And it does a great job of creating some levity in a very intense moment and keeping the film grounded, which it is throughout its entirety, which is, I imagine a very challenging thing to do for a film that takes place in outer space. Um, so for them to be able to do that over and over again and constantly find new ways to do that up to the very end is incredibly impressive. And by the time the film was over, I, uh, as you said earlier, uh, I am a convert and I uh, am very much a, a fan of, of Star Trek at this point. You know, Kyle, I am, I'm loving your insights on this stuff. It's so good. It's, it's uh, as I also have said before in other things uh, we've reviewed on that getting to see someone experience it for the first time is such a vicarious mm -hmm. thing. Getting to see you enjoy it the same way we enjoyed it. The first time we saw it is it's, it's such a treasure to experience. So I'm, I'm really glad you're a part yeah. of this. What's interesting yeah, and I, is oh, go ahead. that reminds me watching him talk about his first viewing of it. I keep going back to the studio in Kingsland where the sets of the uh, Enterprise are. And I love watching people come through for the first time and watching their eyes light up as they see it. They, they walk onto the bridge and their mind gets blown. And I'm so glad to be able to watch Kyle talk about his experience of seeing this film for the first time because it reminds me of that and it releases those same endorphins of like yeah yeah i get to see it through his eyes today i just love that yeah that's 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 always an incredible thing greg what do you got for nope. this one no nope, not gonna file not gonna follow kyle that was perfect move on <laughs> <laughs> awesome what so basically yeah, what he said except so, i'll toot my own horn for picking the right movie for kyle <laughs> once again so that's now at this point stuff. We've, we've already had our resolution of the movie. It's coming to the end. Everybody's safe. The Enterprise crew has saved everyone again. The Enterprise rendezvous with the Excelsior. And they're, lo they're looking at the ship. And McCoy's looking at the Excelsior. And, and it's obviously quite a bit larger than the Enterprise. And they say, wow, you know, that's one big ship. And then, great line quite his by Captain. Great line by Scotty. He he brings it again. Then, Kirk explains. You know, it's it's probably time we got underway ourselves. And they've received direct orders from Starfleet to have the Enterprise decommissioned. 
they look around at each other. Enter- and the then, Enterprise A. Yeah, yeah, the Enterprise A to be decommissioned. And then uh, Spock gives the great line, again, another great line from this movie. If, if, I, I, were was, if I were human, yep, I believe I my response would be, go to hell. If I were human. It's so wonderful. Then, it's so wonderful. It's it's great. It's it's great. It, it's just it's why why everybody loves Spock so much. It's like you know there's that undercurrent of emotion that he's trying to repress, but at this point he's like, all right, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna meld the two together. You know, I'll ultimately follow logic, but I am going to follow my emotional responses because I'm comfortable with being both parts of myself. And you can just Which imagine also, his mom's voice in the back of his head being all proud of him or something at that point for being able to be in touch with his human side. Yeah, no, it's it's in it's it's incredible. And then, of course, Chekhov being helmsman again because everybody's back in their original position, and Kirk does does the line, second start to the right, and straight on till morning. Yeah. Tears. Blast. I always get tears. <laughs> tears. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean. I mean. Really. I mean. A good. A good ending, to that type of situation, guys. We're going to go over. What do you think about the final ending scenes of the movie, Greg? Yeah. Just like I said, there's a uh, tears. Um, uh, both times I watched it this time with the second one, my eyes were swelling, uh, because I remember being a kid watching them, you know, this was the last time. Well, we didn't know we were going to see some of them again, but, and separate, you know, at separate times, but you know, this was the last time with all of them together. Uh, second start of the right and straight on till morning has been used. Uh, the one that comes to my head is, uh, South Park. They ended a South Park episode with that. South Park did a lot of Star Trek stuff, does a lot of Star Trek stuff. Uh, second Star of the Right and Straight On Till Morning is uh, a lot of people quote that uh, in, in the Trek fandom and in other things as an homage to that line. I think Family Guy, if I'm not mistaken. Well, didn't it originate, though, in Peter Pan? Mm-hmm. I, but, well, yeah. yeah. It comes from Peter never, Pan, but I, well, love I, that, I, I love that Kirk uses it. I forget all about that. I, I did not know that until you mentioned it now, but the the in the context of which I'm making the reference to it, they were referencing that it's Kirk's final line. Um, oh, yeah. And then particularly of course, with Family Guy, because he loves yeah. Star Trek. Well, they all do. So do Matt and Trey. But yes, uh, you know, Star Trek helped inspire him, uh, Seth. Um, but yeah, and then particularly when the signatures come, I'm very much hoping, even though I know the movie now like the back of my hand that they do a 40th anniversary of it um well that would have been 2021 uh, i i don't know that this movie has not gotten a fathom event to my knowledge and i was i'm so hoping to see this movie in the, on the big screen uh, as i did ratha khan and voyage home and fathom events so i would love if they do that and to see it on the big screen again i know there'd be waterworks but they're pride waterworks in my team that's my team and, you know, uh, so it's a very touching ending and it's very satisfying and a very uh, fitting end to this crew. Because this was finally TOS, if you will. This crew got a last episode because they're the only series that didn't get a last episode because it was canceled 
after its final episode aired, you know, which became Turnabout Intruder. Um, and so much uh, so like I know how, somebody who solved that and took care of it, though. I know you do. I'll, I'll be on that. And we're going to have him <laughs> on the show. I can't wait. Yes. Yes. Um, you got to uh, watch yeah. Star Trek Continues, folks. That's I, I'll, how I'll, I'll TOS ends. Well, I'll definitely get to that before uh, we, we've got Mr. Mignana on. Um, and yeah, so very fitting conclusion, very touching and uh, a fitting, you know, after all the tense uh, action and the nail biting and the edge of your seat uh, uh, conspiracy thriller that we just watched, it was a great way to, ah, everything's okay. And now let's applaud. This movie deserves applause at the end of it. I'd like to end it with Kirk's Starlog entry, which actually makes a very definitive transition from the original series to the next generation. So it's <laughs> Captain's Log, Stardate 9529.1. This is the final cruise of the Starship Enterprise under my command. The ship and her history will shortly become the care of another crew, not next generation at that point. They will continue the voyages we have begun and journey to the undiscovered countries, name drop, <laughs> boldly going where no man, where no one has gone before. Yeah, there's your next gen one. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, I think we basically wrap that up in a tight little nutshell right there. What I would like to do is, guys, what do you, what, how, how would you rate the movie? Kyle, please go first. So I, I did rate the movie, and I gave it an eight and a half out of ten. Wow, that is that is quite impressive, Dan. What do you yeah, got? That, that's high up there. I always put this one probably right around a nine. My two favorite films of the TOS cast on the big screen are Four and Undiscovered Country. Because both of those movies are perfect for me. I just love them both. Everybody's always like, Wrath of Khan, Wrath of Khan. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that one. I like it quite a bit. But Four and Undiscovered Country are my two favorite TOS films. Perfect, perfect movies. So nine for nine for Undiscovered Country. Okay, Greg. What's your yeah, rating? I'm gonna go, yeah, I'm going to go with Kyle. Um, for years, I gave it a 10. Um, and I could keep it at so let's say 8.5 from 8.5 to 10. But let me step out of my Star Trek fanatic and say, okay, as a viewer, let me separate my the sentiment, the sentimental value that this film has for me and give it an 8.5. But with sentimental value, I then would give it a 10. And for myself, so in my earlier days of watching this movie, I found that the parts. Some of the parts on Rurapenthe with that whole kind of, you know, silly, campy, changing shape and, you know, Turk being obviously way too old to try and get romantically involved with this woman. And then them changing, you know, her changing into him. And then it, it, that kind of that damaged a, a little bit of my love for this movie. But, you know, upon multiple watchings, again, it really is better than I thought. I didn't, I did appreciate the Cold War aspects of it, but I didn't realize how intense they actually were. And then looking again at Christopher Plummer's, Christopher Plummer's uh, performance, 
and David Warner's performance. It, it, it really, it really works. And just the idea of so much Shakespeare in it. And I'm such a big Shakespeare fan. So I'm probably at this point, I'm, if you would have asked me like 20 years ago, I would have given it a six or a seven. Now I'm going to give it an eight, 8.5. So now we'd like to begin, Kyle, we're, we're going to end transmission. And I would like to ask Kyle, where can we find you? You can find me on most social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Baines Film Reviews which is also the name of my site where I review films and also the name of my podcast that you can find on both YouTube and Spotify. Thanks, Kyle. And I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over to Greg for some, for our final announcements. Yes. Uh, first of all, I have a shout out to Cliff Eidelman who did the score for Star Trek six, the undiscovered country. Nick Meyer wanted to use James Horner again, who did wrath of Khan but they couldn't afford James Horner at that point. James Horner was a big composer in the business. Uh, so Cliff Eidelman, a very little known, I don't know much else, if anything done by him, came in and, and rocked this score. So I want to make sure I gave him an honorable mention. Okay, we are doing a promotion here at Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. It's a very exciting contest that we are doing. So email us at sttupodcast at gmail.com. Aaron Cloutier of yourcustomjingle.com, that's yourcustomjingle.com, in our season finale, we are going to premiere a Star Trek song that is going to be selected by you, the listeners, as our way of saying thank you for supporting our show all these months and all this season. Um, what Aaron will do for you is you pick any subject in the entire franchise of Star Trek. So we can, he can write a song, anything about the Borg to Ponfar to the Zindi. He'll do anything you want, and you can even put in as much or as little details as you want, and we will fill in the blanks, and Aaron will write a, a, a song for you. We are doing this on a random selection basis. So you enter, and we may select you, and we'll give some honorable mentions, uh, but the winner, again, it's not selected out of what you come up with for the song. It's selected at random. So please enter, sttupodcast at gmail.com. The website, by the way, Aaron, just for you, Star Trek, the Undiscovered Podcast listeners, go to yourcustomjingle.com, spelt exactly as that sounds, and he writes personalized songs. He's the best in the business. So Mother's Day is coming up. He writes songs in six days. So uh, you, you, you get in your entry just before Mother's Day. He'll do that. Um, you can write a song for your girlfriend. If you have a broken heart, write a song about it. Put in all the details. Aaron will write a song for you. You pick the genre of music you want. He'll put it in there. And right now, he's running the, uh, a counter promotion. You put in the code Star Trek 20. He will take 20% off your order. It's amazing. So that's yourcustomjingle.com. And on Twitter, you could follow him at yourcustomjingle, but that's at YR custom jingle it's a great promotion that he's that he's running and a great contest we're winning and i would also then just like to say john seymour dj nick and now kyle bain are three so far non-trek watchers who have watched star trek every single one of them have enjoyed themselves and it's it just clears up the 
theory that I have is that those that do not watch Star Trek or say they don't like Star Trek has never seen a Star Trek. And, and we return on June, June 2nd, ladies and gentlemen. June 2nd, we return. We're on a little yes. break. Back to you, Ken, to take us out. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. We are going to end transmission. Thank you very much for everyone's participation. Kyle Bain, Dan Martin, Greg Verab. And now, Dan Martin, if you please, lead us into where you can find the rest of the crew. Thank you very much, everybody. Good night. Thank you for listening to Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. Find our team members, Greg Vorob, on Facebook, G-R-E-G-V-O-R-O-B, on YouTube at Greg Vorob, on Twitter at Greg underscore Vorob. Also, check out MSV Podcast Presents The Fake and the Whimsy. Daniel Hawley on Facebook, H-U-L-L-E-Y, and on Twitter at Bland underscore dull underscore don't. Ken Radner on Facebook, K-E-N-R-A-D-N-E-R. And me, Dan Martin, at Baseman Dan Martin 3700 on YouTube. Find this podcast on Facebook at the groups Star Trek Fans United and Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. Like us on Facebook at Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast on Twitter at STTU Podcast or shoot us an email to Podcast at gmail.com Thank you once again for listening to Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast and until next time, live long and prosper.